Welcome to Walking with Freya, a journey through special needs parenting. This podcast is a place for parents and caregivers of children with special needs to share stories, the very real struggles and challenges we face, along with the inevitable love and joy these children have brought into our lives. This is a place for unapologetic honesty, well-intentioned laughter, and endless support. A safe place for us to learn, share, discuss, and help each other navigate this often unexpected journey. Be kind, be supportive, and when you can, keep the humor. My name is Annie, and welcome to Walking with Freya. Never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change the world. Indeed, it's the only thing that ever has. Margaret Mead Welcome back. I thought this quote by anthropologist Margaret Mead was appropriate because today this episode is speaking about the Foundation for Prader Willi Research. As taken from the fpwr.org website, the mission of FPWR is to eliminate the challenges of prader willi syndrome through the advancement of research. High-quality research will lead to more effective treatments and an eventual cure for this disorder. By working together, we intend to free our loved ones from the burdens of PWS, allowing them to lead full and independent lives. I do apologize for my voice. I have a cold coming on, but thankfully this interview that I did was last week, so I was healthy then. So this interview is with Susan Hedstrom, who is the executive director of the Foundation for Prader Willi Research. She became involved in the PWS community shortly after her son Jaden was diagnosed. In this talk, she spoke briefly about her journey into the PWS world and becoming a part of FPWR. Then we get into the who, what, how, and why of FPWR. Susan's passion and commitment to the work that FPWR does is evident throughout this, and I, for one, am very grateful that there are people like her actively fighting for our kids and adults with PWS. Before we get into the interview, I just want to give you a friendly reminder of this podcast and how the word gets out. It gets out by you sharing it with your friends, subscribing on whatever podcast app you listen to it, writing a review clicking on the stars, all of that stuff helps spread the word. And there is also a Facebook page, Walking with Freya, and you can join that group. I've been sharing my daily posts about Prader-Willi syndrome, some facts and some personal stories about our family and what we experience. Also, I will be opening up the podcast to other stories again after May. So if you would like to share your story, please email me at walkingwithfreya at gmail.com. I'd love to share it. So as we go out into this interview, I just wanted to leave you with one more quote. This quote is from Anne Frank. How wonderful it is that nobody need wait a single moment before starting to improve the world. Hi, Susan. So can we start with um, just you telling us a bit about who you are and what brought you into the Prader Willi community. Absolutely. So, um, like many of the people who are probably listening to this podcast, I'm also a parent of a child with Prader Willi syndrome. Prior to the diagnosis, I knew nothing about the syndrome. I had only heard about it um, 
interestingly enough, from an episode of CSI, and it was not the type of introduction that you would want to have to Prader Willie. Um, you know, we hear so many people's diagnosis stories, and I was fortunate enough that the NICU uh, doctor that we were working with had a godson who had Prader Willie syndrome. So she was very good with the delivery. We uh, found out he had Prader Willie uh, within a week of him being born. Um, so we had a very early uh, diagnosis. And I think like many people who received this diagnosis, we had a pretty quick spiral downwards. Um, I took several months to just focus on the baby, removed myself from all social media, most email, period. And as I started to slowly peek my head back out into the world to start to learn more about the syndrome, I quickly became in contact with FPWR. So my mother-in-law um, had found a conference all the way across the coast um, on, in Washington, DC. And she said, if you will come, I will buy the tickets, I will pay for the hotel, you just need to show up. Wow. So we flew Jaden, he was eight months old, um, and all of his equipment to Washington, D.C., and we walked into a room like, you know, wide-eyed deer, afraid of what we were going to see and find out. But what really, what I learned that weekend was that there were researchers around the world who were actually caring about our kids. They cared, and they were looking for, for answers for us, and they were working on this challenge. And um, beyond that, I found an entire room of parents who were also working for our kids. So what I had thought, I thought I was the first person in the world to go through this <laughs> and perhaps the first person in the world to have this diagnosis. And I thought I was all alone and I realized I wasn't. Um, I found some of my best friends that weekend, people who I still connect with um, regularly, who, you know, our kids are growing up together. Um, and, and I found what I feel is my calling, which is really to help accelerate research for our kids, because I think I can say this for all families, treatments can't come soon enough. Mm -hmm. And I'm not going to rest until we have one or more, you know, multiple treatments for all of our kids and adults with Prader-Willi syndrome. Mm -hmm. So uh, that's how I got keyed into this community. And, and I think that's perhaps um, this, you know, my, my connection for you, my story. Uh-huh. Well, that's great. I mean, what a, an amazing experience to get to have in the beginning, especially early on, because I do remember that kind of there being this incubation period in a way of just, you know, getting the diagnosis. I mean, Freya was three and a half months. So, um, but, and then, yeah, just kind of pulling back a little bit and you have to regroup and then you can come back and, and, and that's when I also learned, I got to meet Dr. Miller in the first year or speak mm -hmm. with her in the first year. And that was, you know, that was my first experience with somebody knowing that there was somebody out there who was trying really hard to make it easier and better for our kids and that there was hope. She was the first person that said, you know, there is hope. It's mm -hmm. okay. So. Yeah. I called her within the first several months of Jaden being born as well. And I was so impressed at her willingness to hop on a phone call and talk to me, you know, a patient who she had never met before, who wasn't seeing in her clinic. Um, it, it was really quite welcoming and I appreciated that tremendously. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I remember leaving a message with her secretary, um, voice, the secretary's voicemail and then Dr. Miller herself calling me back the next day. And I was just, <laughs> I was kind of blown away. Like, wait, what? you're a doctor mm -hmm. on the other side of the country and you're calling me. 
Yeah. So you know, she, you know, she's really been quite instrumental, I think, to um, really helping with, with clinical research and, and moving, you know, some, some clinical care programs forward. We're really fortunate here in California. We have a great doctor down in San Diego who he's giving growth hormone the first week that these infants are being diagnosed. He's going into the NICU. He's giving them growth hormone. Um, he's actually, he's the same doctor that Jaden has seen since he was three months old. And we're starting, we're starting to find these doctors around, you know, the country, which is really a great time because we're, um, having all these clinical trials coming up and we need to have a network of doctors who are ready to go, um, to, to act, to have clinical trial sites. And, and that's an initiative that FPWR is pushing forward right now. It's the clinical trials network where we're currently identifying doctors around North America. This is the U S and Canada who have an interest in Prader-Willi syndrome, who see a small cohort of patients regularly and would be interested in partaking in clinical trials. You know, you're, we're gonna find here quite quickly that the more uh, clinical trial opportunities that arise, we're gonna have a shortage of sites if we don't have these doctors identified and ready to go as, uh -huh. um, as clinical trial sites. Yeah, that's a great idea. I mean, because they're all kind of centered around the bigger hospitals and, and universities at this point, right? The clinical trials. So, you know, Zafgen really started this whole process two years ago when they had their first phase three clinical trial. I believe they had 10 sites around the U.S. And that was sufficient for the 100 patients that they needed. But we're now looking at 500 or more patients. And we can't continue to rely on the same sites because those sites are going to be filled up. You know, how many patients can Dr. Miller see in a year? How many um, patients can, you know, Dr. Gottschalk in San Diego see in a year? And how, how many patients can uh, practically fly to those locations on East Coast? So we need right. to be finding sites that cover the majority of the United States so that people can have local clinics that they can access in order to participate in trials. So, okay, great. So can we uh, back up a little bit and just... Can you tell us a little bit about the um, the organization of the of FPWR? That how, maybe how it was, who started it, how it was created. Absolutely. So uh, FPWR was created before my time. It was uh, you know founded by Teresa Strong, Alice Viraslav, Lauren Roth was also an early um, an early founder. Um, it was founded because of, they, they had identified a need. There was little or no research in the, liter, um, in the literature for Prader-Willi syndrome. And our founders had a vision that we could fill that need. Mm -hmm. So, you know, in the early 2000s, there was little being done to advance our understanding of Prader-Willi syndrome or to develop treatments for PWS. And there was very little published in the medical literature. Um, you know, this is, the medical literature is really quite important. We talk about it a lot at FPWR because doctors rely on this to guide patient care. Uh -huh. Without discoveries being published in the literature, doctors have no standards from which they can base their recommendations or their treatments. Mm -hmm. So the medical literature provides a way to share discoveries, it allows for new ideas to be generated, and it allows researchers to piggyback off of other people's discoveries so that we can advance research forward. So FPWR was fortunate. You know, we were co-founded by geneticist Teresa Strong. She's a mom who also has a child with Prader-Willi syndrome. And she brings a unique set of talents to our organization. So not only you know, is she a parent who gets it, she's living with the syndrome on a daily basis, but she's also a well-versed scientist. In fact, as a geneticist, she worked under Francis Collins, who's now the head of the NIH. So 
she understands the system. She knows what makes good science. She knows how research is moved forward and what needs to be done at the FDA. And she's able to provide a unique perspective to be able to see the big picture and then break it down into actionable steps. So these moms came together, they said, research isn't happening at the rate that it needs to happen. We need treatments for our kids. We have a vision for what we can do to help, help um, push this research forward. And you know, around a kitchen table, they had collected some checks at $50,000 between the three of them. And that's how FPWR started. Wow. So it was just, it was three moms that, that saw the need and had the motivation and uh, funding. You know, well, very, very little funding, you know, in the, uh-huh. in the very, right, in, the, in the very few first few years, there, there was only several thousand dollars to go around. It was really the involvement of our Prader-Willi community that has brought in the, the funds necessary to help grow these programs and bring us to what we are now, which is a $3 million organization. Mm-hmm. So can you talk a bit about who decides what studies get funded? Because it's a collection of doctors and parents, and right? Right. So, you know, as our organization has grown, so is the programs that we've managed. So when we first began, we relied solely on a grants program to distribute funding, and this is through a competitive process. While mm-hmm. we do continue to do that, we have a number of directed programs which we fund and manage, uh, which aim to fill gaps and de-risk drug development process. I can delve into more information about those programs, but your current question is really asking about our grants program. So how does FPWR select the studies we fund through our competitive grants program? Um, you know, this program supports research that aligns with priorities, which are to advance the understanding of Prader-Willi syndrome and develop effective treat- or therapeutic interventions. Mm-hmm. And it's designed to support early stage, innovative, high risk, high rewards research. So you asked, you know, who, who's choosing what's to fund? Really, this is a full team effort. So grants are selected based on the input of expert scientists and parent advocates. When a grant is being reviewed, we reach out to experts in the field that are relevant to that particular topic. So let's say that you have someone who wants to know about um, brain imaging. We're going to go out to um, the, the best of the best brain doctors. We're going to ask them to give their input on this grant. Uh, We also will have two or three advocates. So advocates are people who have children with Prader-Willi syndrome because not only do we want to fund the best science, Uh we also want to fund science that's relevant to the community and is things that our parents are truly um, encouraged by and excited to actually fund. Mm -hmm. And then, so what were the other? Oh, our directed research programs. Yes. So again, for, you know, for about the first 10 years, um, FPWR solely funded program projects through the grants program. We encouraged researchers to submit projects, especially, you know, researchers that were perhaps outside the field of PWS, but were doing something very relevant. We would invite them to submit grants. Um, if we saw some really interesting work that we thought needed to have further funding, we would encourage those researchers, of course, to continue. Um, with that funding, you know, our, our real goal was to provide seed funds for one or two years so that they could get data they needed to then go off to the FDA or the NIH and get million dollar grants, which is way above what FPWR can fund. It's for a single individual, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but now that, you know, as we've grown, we've, be- we've come to a point where we truly can be in the driver's seat. We see this big picture about where we need to take the research and we've identified gaps. So we developed our directed research program to really fill those gaps 
and to ultimately de-risk the drug development process. Um, we do this at all stages of the drug development pipeline. Um, I don't think I need to get into all of those, but we've set up specific programs to help, um, for example, preclinical development. Um, this is the stage before we put in a drug into humans. Um, mm -hmm. You don't want to give your kids anything that's going to potentially cause an, an adverse reaction, right? right. Um, you know, the, the most extreme would be death. So before we can do any human trials, we have to, have to, have to test them for both safety and efficacy in animal models. So you can see the importance that if we wanna make sure that a drug is going to be effective, we have to have a really good animal model that truly replicates um, the symptoms of Prader-Willi syndrome. Otherwise, what you could do is end up spending some very valuable resources, not only time, but money, on a drug that ultimately never should have gone into clinical trials because it's not addressing the actual the issue. I think hyperphagia is a really easy example. Mm -hmm. Let's say that you give a drug to um, a model and the model says that it's a good drug, it's working. Well, if that model is defective, you've now taken a drug that really wasn't, uh, wasn't going to work in humans. You've put it through a seven-year process where you're testing it in humans well over a million to even a billion dollars to test a drug. If you could have just used a model at the very beginning that was very stringent and, um, and didn't have false positives, then you could have eliminated that drug from the, um, from the pipeline and focused on, some, on something that really was going to have potential to move forward. Uh -huh. So that's one area. Again, it's not sexy, but it's so, so, so important that we spend some time developing these models because all of our drug development is dependent on that. Uh -huh. <sighs> so, <Yeah>, that's... <laughs> well, it's just funny because I'm, and I've talked about on the podcast before, I mean, before Freya was born, I was very kind of anti-Western medicine in a lot mm -hmm. of ways. And, um, you know, I gave birth at home to my first daughter and used herbs. And so like now to be in this place where I'm really promoting, uh, you know, the use of animal models and, um, mm -hmm. and medical research, but it's so, you know, it's one of those things when you're there and when you're in the experience, when you have this, this child that you are trying to give them the best life possible, then, you know, you can, you, you alter your, uh, your, your perspective a bit. Right. Quite a bit sometimes. <laughs> Well, the, the, the fact is that our kids are missing some genetic material and, you know, to, to completely oversimplify, there's parts of their body that are broken. So mm -hmm. what can we do to help fix those broken parts? Clearly, you know, occupational therapy, speech therapy, those are all helping our kids utilize what they have to get, the, to make the most, right? Mm -hmm. But it's not fixing the underlying problem. Right. So ultimately we're going to need uh, drugs, whether they are novel compounds or a genetic therapy to really rescue, right? The, mm -hmm. the, we call it rescuing the phenotype. So it's, it's bringing back the lost information so that our kids can function. Um, you know, another program that I have to mention is our clinical care program. And this was something that was new. Again, you know, we, we just developed it in the last two years. FPWR has spent a lot of time looking for the home run, right? We're, we're spending a lot of time on genetic therapy, which has the potential to be transformative. That's 
genetic therapy is likely what is going to provide a quote unquote cure for mm -hmm. our loved ones with Prader Willi. But this is a really early uh, technology. There's so many questions that we need to answer still about um, genetic therapy that it's just gonna take a long time before we can even test it in humans. So what can we do in the meantime? I don't know about you and Freya, but my son's nine years old and I need a treatment yesterday. Like, right. You know, for many of us, we feel like time's running out. And, and when you say it's gonna be even five years down the road, I get tears in my eyes. So mm -hmm. we developed this clinical care program because we recognize we need some short-term wins here. We need things that can help address some of the challenges that our kids are facing in the near term. And so from, from that aim, the clinical care program is developed. We have a list of current drugs um, that are already FDA approved. They're on the market being used for other indications. And we're prioritizing this list with the input of community members to just, as well as clinicians to find the top few mm -hmm. to push forward in clinical trials just for Prader-Willi syndrome. Um, in this way, we could then provide recommendations to not only families, but to medical practitioners that a particular drug is or is not effective for Prader-Willi syndrome. As most people with, um, you know, with, our, with loved ones with Prader-Willi syndrome have experienced, it's often challenging when you walk into a doctor's office and say, let's just use daytime sleepiness as an example. My kid is really sleepy. I've heard about ProVigil. Um, I'd like to try it. And what does the doctor say? Well, I don't know. It's got a black box label on it. It's, it's a stimulant. We're not sure. Well, let's go back and let's look at some of the literature on ProVigil. It's been studied in children with, um, it's been studied in children. It's been studied in children with Prader-Willi syndrome. It's been shown to be safe. It's been shown to be effective. That's great. That's now available for ProVigil. What's the next drug that we can do this for? So that we now have it in the literature and doctors have something to base their, um, base their prescriptions off of. So, I mean, my experience has been a lot of times going in to our local doctors or even, you know, down in San Francisco and feeling like I know more than the doctors mm -hmm. do because I'm on the Facebook groups and I'm, and I'm, on, you know, getting on the websites and reading all about this. And so it is very frustrating to know that something is going to be good for your child and you're having to argue with the doctor for mm -hmm. it. I mean, it wasn't easy for us to get Freya on growth hormone. And that was so frustrating because everybody in the Prader Willa community at that time knew like, yeah, this is what we do. And so I, I think that's great. I love the, the short-term wins because we do need that because we do want our kids. We want to see that progress mm -hmm. and we want to be able to offer it to them. So would you like to talk about how people can help raise money for FPWR? You know, I never thought that I would get giddy about talking about fundraising. <laughs> um, back when I was a kid, I would just cringe at the thought of even having to sell candy bars for the school fundraiser. And, and most of the time, my parents didn't even want me to do it. So, you know, to have to get up and talk about fundraising is, it's just ironic that, that that's what, that's something that I, that I do now. Right. So, you know, to start, there are so many things a person can do to get involved with FPWR. And one of the most obvious ways to get involved is fundraising. That's not the only thing that you can do. Uh, FPWR does rely on our community for donations to fund our programs, and the fundraisers in our community have absolutely been imperative to funding research. 
you know, I, we mentioned it before we started the webinar, but these days technology is, you know, it's, it's so good. You can fundraise from your couch by simply setting up a fundraising page and sharing your story with your, with your network. And Facebook, you know, now it's even letting you set up fundraisers. It takes about a minute to do. 100% of the donations that go through Facebook come right to FPWR. They're not even charging credit card processing fees. So if your birthday is coming up, Facebook's actually going to prompt you and say, hey, do you want to donate your birthday to a good cause? And I'm hoping that your answer is going to be, yes, I do. <laughs> and you're going to set up one of those um, little quick and easy fundraisers using Facebook's tools. You know, if you want to get more sophisticated, you can host a fundraising event like a One Small Step Walk. And you did this back in the days. Um, you can also host an online fundraiser. So right now we have a PWS Artist Art Auction. This was a novel idea by Amber Rector, one of our One Small Step hosts out in Columbus, Ohio. She had a brilliant idea a couple of years ago to have um, different parents work with their kids, create a piece of art and submit it to our art auction. Mm -hmm. um, it raises a couple thousand dollars every year. And um, I, I personally love it. I buy a piece of work every year. I actually post them in my daughter's bedroom. Mm -hmm. um, so I encourage everyone to, um, you know, if you see the art auction, go check out the art. It's really cool. And if you have a fundraising idea, and you just need a little bit of help or support getting it off the ground, let us know here at FPWR. We have um, one full-time fundraiser, Jackie Maison, as well as a part-time fundraiser, Sarah Peden, who can help get you um, up and running with whatever ideas you have. When my husband and I got married, we asked, instead of gifts, we asked for people to donate to FPWR. So that's, I think, any of those birthdays, weddings, any of those opportunities where people are wanting to give, you can redirect them to uh, FPWR. Absolutely. I mean, any, 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 any event or celebration is always a reason to throw a fundraising component into it. And I will just say, people are looking for places to give. Uh -huh. People want to support you know, good causes. And oftentimes, they're just waiting to ask. You know, My family, we have a set budget that we set aside specifically for supporting our friends' uh, fundraising causes. And I, I can't believe that we're the only ones who do that. So if you want your cause to be the one that's getting supported, you just got to ask your, you know, put it out there for people to do it. They're not going to donate if they don't want to. Right. And they certainly aren't going to donate if they don't know about it. So. Exactly. <laughs> so the One Small Step, uh, were you, did you have a hand in creating that and starting the One Small Step idea? So it, it, it's a... <laughs> I mean, the long version or the short version. So Tanya Johnson actually was the mastermind behind One Small Step. She hosted her event when her son was about a year old um, up in Toronto, Canada. She, you know, she started with her wedding invitation and invited everyone who had been invited to her wedding to come out to this walk. And I think she raised $50,000 from it. Wow. Um, and she realized that, you know, hey, this is replicable. So when I went to my first conference, um, you know, Tanya pulled me aside and she said, hey, I've got something that you might be interested in. And I said, oh, really? I don't fundraise. And she said, oh, no, no, no. Don't worry. It's not, it's not that. And um, she slowly brought me into the fold of what she was trying to do. And yes, it was fundraising, but it was actually, it was the most therapeutic activity I had ever done. Um, I, you know, I did this, I did this walk and all of a sudden lights were going off like, whoa, I can do something here. I can actually have an impact. I'm doing something for my kid. 
And the cause just wrapped me in, you know, I was, I had no intention of going back to work full time. I was planning on staying home with Jaden. Um, I felt that he needed me more than uh, my students did. I had been a teacher at the time. Mm-hmm. And uh, I slowly started putting more and more time into FPWR and, and I started feeling so much better. You know, I, I felt like I was doing something, I was contributing. And um, so that's how, that's how I got wrapped into one small step and it's grown so much. Um, really quite proud of what we've been able to do with that program. Yeah, I've seen some amazing walks. People have really, they really go above and beyond to put these walks together. It's amazing. I was impressed with how much we raised just in my little community up here, up in the, up in the Redwoods in Northern California. So it is when, and especially when people meet our kids, I think, mm-hmm. you know, and they meet our kids and they're often, you know, just so sweet and, and loving and people get, you know, they get inspired mm-hmm. to, to share you know, you hit you. I think you hit on it right there. It's community, and that's that's what one small step is really all about. It's bringing together the community, and what we've when we've seen the most successful one small step events, it's when multiple families in that community come together and, and really drive that walk forward, inviting out their friends. Uh, we had a lo- you know our local walk in San Diego, and we had a, I don't know two or three families that would. Uh, put some of the planning in the, in the back end on it. And then you would just see all of these other families, 20 or 30 families would come out each year. Mm. More than 200 people would come out and walk. Uh, and everyone just loved it. It was such a wonderful you know, opportunity to, to get together and, and see your local uh, families. Yeah. I know I am a little jealous about that. I mean, there's not really, um, there's not a community up here really mm-hmm. because it's so rural, but I do get to meet a woman that I interviewed. I get to meet her down in San Francisco when I take Freya to her appointment in May. And I'm really excited about it because her daughter is the same age as Freya. And that's something that I see like on the Facebook pages and stuff like that. People put the call out like, hey, I'm going to see this doctor on this day. Is anybody going to be around? And it's just, it really is an amazing community, the way people reach Mm -hmm. out to Mm -hmm. each other and, and are really being supportive and yeah, and I agree. I agree. And, and I think that it's something unique to um, our Prouder Willie community. And I'm hoping that we can leverage some of our community's engagement and closeness with each other to help fill some of these clinical trials that are coming up. You know, my goal is that parents will stay up to date on the opportunities okay. and, and share them with other families. So, it, so it's not just, hey, uh, I'm going to be, you know, at this seeing this doctor on this day, are you, is anyone else going to be there? But it will be, hey, I just saw this trial opportunity. Um, my child's not old enough to, but I think yours might be. Go mm-hmm. check it out. You, you know, but just sharing some of the, the opportunities or if you're going to be in the trial, it's just encouraging other people um, to, to look and see if it's right for them, uh-huh. right? Not, not every trial is going to be right for every family, but we're never going to know what treatments are going to work if we can't fill the trials. So it's getting the word out to parents um, about the opportunities. And, and if they're, if they're so inclined to participate, then that's wonderful. Yeah. And so do you want to tell people how to, how to find the, what trials are coming up? Is there, um, cause there's an email list, right? I mean, I've been getting monthly emails. Right. So we're, you know, this, this is one of, we're, we're really trying to make this information very accessible to parents. So we have a standing page on the FPWR website. So if you go to fpwr.org 
and you go to get involved, there's a link that says PWS clinical trials. And this takes you to um, an overview of all the trials that are in progress or starting soon. Some of them are drug trials. Many of them are not. Many of them are behavior interventions or, um, you know, there's one study, it's, it's eye tracking. You simply go for a two hour um, uh, visit and then you're done. So there's different levels of investment of time, right? Some mm -hmm. require travel, some are virtual, but there's an overview of all of these right there on the website. And you can sign up for the clinical trials alert at that point. When you do sign up for that email, you get a monthly email that gives you an overview of what's new. So maybe a trial wasn't enrolling last month, but it is enrolling this month. Or maybe the Case Western team is traveling to Atlanta, which they are next, uh, next month. Um, and they're going to be there local for families who'd like to participate in their trial. So that's a great way if you don't want to be checking the website or reminding yourself to go check the website, you can just sign up for the trial alerts and it goes directly to your inbox. And then, yeah, and then share it on, share it on the Facebook pages and with your friends. Yes, and share it. The more people mm -hmm. who share, the more people who will see it. So the way Facebook's algorithm works, if, if people comment on the post itself, more people will see it. So let's say that I post a trial alert that company X is enrolling patients um, and we need, you know, we have five trial sites open. People aren't going to see that unless people start interacting with the post. So if you interact with the post and Susie interacts with the post and Johnny interacts with the post and puts comments there, now a thousand people are going to see that post. The more people we get interacting with it, the more people see it and the more people who are going to get that opportunity. Okay. So even if you, so if you see a post about a trial, even if it's not something that you could participate in, you can still comment like, Ooh, this looks like a great idea. <laughs> Just exactly. To, okay. Exactly. Good to know. Cause I, I keep hearing about the Facebook algorithm, but I don't, I haven't. Yeah. It, it really wants people to interact with the post itself and comments are the best thing a person can do these days. Okay. So are there any studies that are coming out that you're really excited about or that are, that are getting funded or looking for funding? So that's a loaded question because, <laughs> of course, I think that every study that's coming out is promising. You know, when we review these projects and discuss what, what may come out of them, you know, the ultimate or solution, it, it's really exciting. We, we can't predict what the next big breakthrough will be. That's the, you know, that's the frustrating part. And that's why it's important that we have to fund multiple pathways forward in parallel. So we're not just funding drug development. We're also funding, um, you know, uh, gene therapy. And we're also funding, um, you know, some basic science. It, we have to fund all of these things. Technology is really advancing at such a remarkable rate. And gene therapy has the potential to be transformative, which is why I get really excited about it. But we're still in infancy when it comes to that therapy. I think I mentioned that before. And there's a lot of questions that we have to answer. I, I'm sure that you could come up with a, with a list of them. You know, at what age is gene therapy most effective? Will it work at all ages to some degree? Or does it have to be given before a certain age? Um, you know, in addition to gene therapy, we're also looking at drugs. I mentioned that have already been given FDA approval. We're looking at novel drugs that have never before been used in humans. Um, there's, a, there's several of those that are in development that are starting to get picked up um, or getting some interest from uh, industry sponsors to help move those discoveries forward. So I think that we're in a really exciting place right now. We don't know which study 
is necessarily going to pay off first or be that first home run. But what I can say is the, the findings that are coming out are really exciting. I mean, how about Dr. Lalanne's discovery? They reversed PWS in a neuron. Yeah, I was so excited when I saw that. I was like, what? Right. But now that's a gene therapy technique. So uh, they were able to use the, I can't get into too much of the details, but they were able to essentially turn on that, the genes that are missing. Right. They, they use the maternal allele. They, turn, they were able to turn on those genes. That's great. They didn't see any negative side effects in a cell, but this was a cellular model. Right. So what happens when we then take it to an entire organism? Are we going to see negative effects? Because, you know, what, I think the big scientific question is, these genes are turned off for a reason. Uh -huh. What's going to happen when we do turn them on? That's the feasibility question that we have to continue to investigate. Mm -hmm. And that's going to take time. But is there, is there a process for, that people can come in and kind of spark an idea for a study? Or So there's a number of ways that, that research or ideas get percolated. Um, the most developed ideas are going to be submitted through the grants um, application process. So a researcher writes a letter of intent. It's a two-page um, general uh, description of what their project is going to be. We look at it, we have our advocates look at it, and uh, we select the most uh, interesting ideas or perhaps the ideas that we think are going to be most relevant at that time. And then we invite those researchers to submit full application, which goes through the, the full review process. Uh, we, we instituted this process a couple years ago because we're getting so many applications for research. Mm -hmm. You know, when we started, we were begging researchers to submit um, <laughs> their applications and now we get more than 50 applications a year and so wow. we had to kind of start streamlining the process a little bit but that's the most developed ideas mm -hmm. um you know we're teresa strong myself we're parents too so we go out in the community we are listening for people's ideas we're listening for things that people are trying and we absolutely talk about it all um and when we hear about ideas that could perhaps be further developed or further researched we'll go out to the researchers who are most um, who are perhaps experts in that field. So with, I'm trying to come up with an example, but um, without having an example, it gets a little bit more challenging. But let's just say that there's um, a drug that you tried with your kid and you think it works really well. So you and I start chatting about it and I'm like, oh yeah, that sounds interesting. So Teresa and I start chatting about it and then we might go run it past Dr. Miller and say, hey, well, what are you thinking about this? And then that drug would be considered on our clinical care list. If it's not there already, it may already be there. Um, if it's, you know, a therapeutic intervention or um, other thing, it would go through a similar type process, but really it's discussing it, bringing it into FPWR as a team, taking it back out to the researchers, getting their input for it, and then finding researchers who would be interested in submitting uh, applications either through the directed, I'm sorry, through the grants program, or if it's, a, if it's a project we take on through one of our directed programs, like the clinical care program, then we would work with the rest researchers to develop that protocol. So can we talk about the conferences for a minute? Do you- I love conference. Yeah. It's like Christmas day. <laughs> so yeah, what happens? I mean, I'm, I'm definitely interested in attending a conference. Uh, the next one is in Vegas. Right? Yeah, it's probably as close as it's going to get to you. So okay. uh, you should you should think about coming out. So yeah, do you want to talk about what happens at the conference? Who comes and 
So, so for, I think first and foremost, especially for the for the newer di newly diagnosed families, um, it's life changing. It's absolutely transformative. I do think that uh, most of us, if not all of us, go through the stages of grief when we receive this diagnosis, and the conference is one piece of support that helps you regather yourself and open. Uh, yourself perhaps to some of the new opportunities that you're now going to receive. Um, I've met some of my best friends at conferences. I've been inspired at conferences. The, the information that's available at your fingertips is phenomenal. These researchers, they're not just walking in the back door presenting and, and leaving. They're, they're there with us. At, you know, they're, they're members of the conference participating. They're in the hallways. People are, you know, when, when attendees have questions, they go right up to the researchers and ask them right there in the halls. All of our presentations have Q&A at the end so that people can, can interact with the speakers as well. And we try to really bring in a mix. So, um, you know, different topics, clinical topics, research topics, topics that might be interesting for teens and adults with Prader-Willi syndrome, as well as topics that would be more geared for a newer diagnosed individual. Um, this year's conference, we have a lot of behavior um, topics. Kate Woodcock's coming from the UK. I met her at the mental health conference a couple of years ago. The woman is absolutely brilliant. She gets behavior so well and the, she understands triggers. So you and I might just, you know, our kids are having meltdowns and we're frustrated because they're having meltdowns. Well, mm -hmm. he will drill it down to what caused the meltdown. What was the precursor to the meltdown? What did the meltdown look like? And she will actually help you d define what the different tantrums are and, and why each one is happening and mm -hmm. what a tantrum looks like because of which cause. It's very, very interesting. Um, Elizabeth Roof is also going to be there. I think most people know Elizabeth Roof um, based on some of the, her prior work, but she's working with adolescents and um, developing a program to help them be um, to social to function better socially with their peers. And um, Anastasia Dimitropoulos will be there for the younger kids. She's been working with preschoolers, um, helping them um, learn better social skills earlier on. So if they have fewer challenges when they get to be the teenagers, which is what Elizabeth Ruth is addressing. Mm -hmm. uh, those are just the behavior people. We have a speech therapist coming in who's worked with my son. Uh, my, so my son, Jaden, has severe apraxia. Um, it's been a real challenge for us. And until I brought this particular therapist on, we were pretty frustrated. She came on, worked with him. She's been working with him for two years now. And she's been trying new techniques, really cutting edge. Um, and we've seen some really nice gains. He's still hard to understand. Don't get me wrong. This is no, this is no cure for his challenges. Right. But his speech has improved dramatically. And I'm really excited to bring her out. Um, <clears throat> and she'll be there not only to present, but to consult with families who are having speech challenges with their kids. Um, Melanie Silverman will be coming out. She's going to talk about Nutrition 101. So, you know, what is just some good basic nutritional practices that you should be following? Um, I'm going to do a little interview with her. I'm really excited to do that. Um, so people can kind of get to know a little bit about what her nutritional philosophy is before they go to her session. Um, well, as always, we'll have our clinical trial sessions. So representatives from each clinical trial have been invited. 
they'll come out, they'll present on their opportunity, and, and then my favorite part, the audience gets to ask them questions. Oh, nice. Yeah. So that's a highlight of some of the conference sessions. So this is for families to go to. You can happily bring your children and there's a space for them or is it more recommended just kind of for parents to go? So we've, in the past, we've had a challenge to fill our childcare program. A lot of parents, um, you know, some parents bring their kids, but a lot of parents aren't. That's just by choice. Uh -huh. So this year, because the conference is in Vegas, we thought, we're gonna. We're not going to have a childcare program. Okay. Um, now that said, parents are welcome to bring their kids. Uh, we've had babies as old as two or three sit in conference sessions with the parents. So you know, if, if you need to bring a kid, they're always welcome. Um, ironically, I don't think I have childcare that weekend, <laughs> and I might have to bring my three children to the conference. Um, in which case, you know, my husband and my mother-in-law are going to, or they're just going to have to take turns <laughs> watching the kids, but they may be out at the Vegas, one of the, one of the pools there at Caesars Palace. So, you know, it's, you, people, I, I would hate for people to not come. I would just say, bring your kids and we'll figure it out. Okay. All right. Good to know. Yeah. I would leave my kids at home. I think I just come by myself. You know, that's, <laughs> that's always, <laughs> that's always been my recommendation because when you bring your children, it's just a different experience. You know that they're there. You uh -huh. still have to take them to dinner at night. You need to, um, you know, you have to put them to bed at night. There's right. no one to take care of those, those things for you. And, and it's hard to fully immerse yourself in the conference experience. Mm -hmm. when you have these other obligations. So I always recommend to parents, if you can, yeah. not everyone can, but if you can, find someone so that you can leave your children at home and you can just immerse yourself. It's a day and a half. It's Friday from, you know, Friday one o'clock to Saturday at 5 p.m. So, well, my last question was, which I'm pretty sure we covered it, and it's kind of an obvious question, but just the big, like the big why of supporting FPWR and I mean we've talked about community and we've talked about the necessity of and the desire for helping our children have an easier life um, but I'm just wondering if there's anything else that you wanted to say on the whole on uh, why people should be supporting this mm -hmm. well you know ultimately um, the, the most simple response is FPWR is doing what no one else can plain and simple we're uniquely positioned to accelerate research. We fund discovery research. We de-risk drug development. We facilitate the completion of clinical trials, ultimately from the beginning of the drug development pathway all the way to the end. We're improving efficiencies and we're increasing the probability of what we're all looking for, which is a win. All right, and so the way people can get in touch with FPWR if they don't already know is the website fpwr.org and that will take them to the main page and there they can sign up for the clinical trials. They can learn about putting on a one small step. There's also the first steps parent package that I saw, right? Is that, that's something you put together for new, newly diagnosed. Any other way to get in touch or is that the best way to, to find out? I mean, I, th I think um, just to remind everyone in our community, we're a grassroots organization. We're, we're parents, most of us are just our parents, just like you all, and we want to be in touch with you. So if parents have questions, they can email us, they can call us. Um, we're always happy to field any questions a person might have. So please feel free to reach out. 